The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Shalom Lipsker now presents his lecture, A Hasidic Response to an Unfathomable Tragedy. Good afternoon. My name is Shalom Lipsker. I live here in Bell Harbor, Florida, and was at the center of the location of this internationally publicized tragedy that befell our community, which is a rather small community. Surfside itself, which is one of the four little towns that make up our neighborhood, which is 33154. Surfside is one mile north to south and one mile east to west, less. In most places, about a quarter of a mile east to west, or half a mile east to west. And in that little community, this major tragedy took place. So let me walk you a little bit through it because one of the most important facets of this is what does it mean to you and I except for more information? You already have as much information as you need about the subject. There's probably more things written about it, spoken about it, etc., even on its anniversary. So it's just interesting, everything's by divine providence. I'm sitting next to a gentleman from Columbus. And he said to me, this was, what a story, he says, but the whole story isn't the response. The response is the whole story. And I thought that that's a pretty strong reality statement. The Rebbe felt the same way. In the end of it, in the late 1950s, when there was extraordinary terror going on in the Holy Land. <clears throat> and Arab Fedayeen terrorists entered into the Chabad village that housed immigrant students, primarily from Middle Eastern countries like Morocco, in their printing shops and other places where they trained them to have a life. They came in late at night when they were studying and they murdered five of the students. It was an untold tragedy. All of Chabad shuddered. And for an entire week after the tragedy, even though the Rebbe sent 12 emissaries to the community and gave various instructions to the community, but did not respond to the tragedy for a whole week. And everybody was kind of wondering, why did the Rebbe not respond to this kind of a tragedy when we know the sensitivity of the Rebbe? It was untold. The Rebbe cried about a little boy in the middle of Russia who was lost to his faith. And I remember at a public gathering where the Rebbe was publicly crying and sobbing about it. And here there was no response. And when they asked him after, he wrote to a few people. And he, this is actually in writing. He said that when Aaron lost his two sons, he was silent. And how much more so in this case? 
because there were five sons lost. So the Rebbe did not respond, he said, because the only response that there is to this is to continue to build and to bring in more disciples and to do more strength in their work. That was his response. But what do you do in the reality when suddenly you are faced with that kind of an interaction that is long-lasting, lasts about a month from the time of the collapse of the building until the last person was found. And during that whole month, the entire community was in some state of mourning. It was really something tragic. I always find it a little bit difficult and I try to shy away from talking about the subject because it immediately brings you into a space where you try to get away from because it's not, it's not a happy place. So how do you respond to this process? You don't train, you don't train for it. There's no training, you know. The subject is a Hasidic response to an unfathomable tragedy. I have to tell you, the truth is there is no Hasidic response. There's no Hasidic text that will give you a how-to response to this kind of an event. There is a Hasid's response who is immersed in a Hasidic lifestyle that has a response, but it's not, there's no philosophy here. Philosophy, theories, logic, brilliance will not in any way address any aspect of this kind of a tragedy, particularly to those that are living through it. So I'll walk you through it a little bit. It's like 2 a.m. and my phone rings and it's my granddaughter. And she says to me, Zadie, did you hear all these sirens going on? There's so many sirens in the street. I said, I really didn't hear, but let me check it in. And I happened to be the police chaplain of the Bell Harbor Police Department. So we have some access, and my son is the chaplain of the Surfside Police Department. So we immediately called to see what's going on, and they said, there's some big emergency, but we don't know what's happening. And then I get a phone call from a police officer that says, Rabbi, maybe you can help us. There's this crazy woman running around the streets in Surfside, knocking on people's doors with her kids. And she says that she's just been through an earthquake and we, we want to find her and commit her. But before we do that, you know, probably she's maybe part of the Jewish community. So who's this crazy woman? So I'm already a little perturbed at what's going on. So I go out to see what happens, what's going on. And it's not far from my house. It's a less than four minute car drive. And the cloud, there's a massive, massive, massive cloud of dust that's covering like a good part of Collins Avenue, south of 90th Street. And there are literally, what I saw, hundreds of emergency vehicles. It was just everything. It was parked, double parked, triple parked. You couldn't go through the streets, emergency vehicles.
I said, what's going on? He said, we really don't know. And we waited around a little bit to see what could happen, what would be. And slowly, people started piling out of one of the apartment buildings, the front one. And it was visible that the entire apartment building had just collapsed. At that moment, that, that few moments, I'm not saying that moment, could be that hour, that half hour, it's this time frame that all this takes place. There was two things, utter confusion, total confusion, everybody, police, firefighters, people, and absolutely blank faces. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Sometimes in Holocaust films, you see a blank face, no emotion, nothing. They're not smiling, they're not frowning. They're just like stunned, shocked. So again, there's a certain eeriness of feeling that starts to set in. And at this time, it's already getting towards morning and we recognize what had just taken place. This entire building collapsed and immediately the questions are, who was there? During the summer, a lot of people don't go there. There's a lot of winter residents, but there are a lot of people now that live there all the time. Who was there? We all knew people there. We all had close friends there. We had friends, acquaintances, participants, all of us. So it started questioning who was there. How do you find out what happened? The police and the search rescue, they started, they closed off the area. You couldn't, people could not have access. The reason I did have access, as I said to you, is because I, I'm a chaplain of the police department, so I had access, but it was completely closed off. And just looking at the debris, just looking at the debris, which we later called the teams, gave that debris a very special name, they called it the holy pile because of all the souls that are somehow enmeshed in that pile. When we took a look at that pile, I feel, it, I feel now some of that intensity of emotion. You knew for sure that this was a tragedy beyond comprehension, where you realize you didn't know where did this building disappear? Talking about 12 stories, and you looked at it, and it was just like a basement filled with stone and rubble and <laughs> pillars sticking out. It was an unfathomable reality. What's going on over here? Nobody could understand it. And as the information started to seep in and relatives started to come around, a few blocks away is the community center, the community center, and that became the center point for people to gather. And so the community center halls rooms, outside spaces, everything was filled with people. People were laying on their blankets, on sleeping bags, on their hands, on bags. There were men, women, children, all kinds of languages, everybody sitting there waiting for some news about somebody. And each time somebody would come in with, an, with a uniform whether he knew or not what was happening, each time somebody would come in, 
everybody would rush up to say, any news? Did you hear anything? Can you find anybody? Because at that moment, this was Friday morning, there was hope that there would be some people found in the debris somewhere. And so there was this constant questioning. Nobody had any answers. And as we got reports of what was going on there, we realized that there's going to be a lot of, unfortunately, mortal deaths. There's a lot of people that will be not coming out. And so immediately new questions came out. The new questions are, how do you deal with this from a Jewish law point of view? As you know, in Jewish law, every part of every body is holy, which means even blood loss. If a body is in a hospital, God forbid, and a person passes away, they make sure that the mattress or the blanket or the sheet where the blood of that person came out is also taken with them to be buried because every part of a person needs to be buried. So how do you deal with it under these circumstances? And how about identifying people? What's the identity portion? So we convened rabbinical meetings with the most important rabbis in Israel and in America who dealt with these matters in Israeli t uh, terrorist attacks and other kinds of situations, in Holocaust questions. You had to deal with certain factors that we just were not equipped to address, just from a technical, realistic point of view. And then there were the basic needs of people which also were immediately addressed, which is a place to sleep. You're talking about 98 people that perished. There were at least 500 family people laying around, standing around, waiting to see here somebody or something. And then on top of that, friends. So of course, you have to address their needs. Their needs are food. Now, not food. Breakfast at 9 o'clock from 9 to 10, and lunch from 12 to 1, and dinner from 6 to 7 which bucks 24-7 breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Because these people are up 24-7. They sleep on the floor. They're waiting for somebody to tell them how their mother or father or child is doing. So this was an extremely tense environment simply from a logistic point of view. And then as far as search and rescue is concerned, we have experience here in South Florida, hurricanes in South America, earthquakes sometimes, also hurricanes, weather, but we never have a building collapse. It's outside of our realm of dealing with factors of such emergencies. And even though Dade County has the, number, the two best search and rescue teams in the country, number one and number two is the number one rescue team of Dade, of Dade, Dade and Broward County. Excellent people. They have done excellent work and they go all over the world. But here, because of the Jewish angle to this process, and so many Jewish people there, and I believe also, it's important to recognize the extraordinary respect that Jewishness gives to life, and the extraordinary respect that Jewishness gives to eternal life, which is spiritual life even after physical life, that has to be done with the utmost care. And so it was thought that probably one of the very important things to bring here was the Israeli team. 
the IDF team from Israel, which you'll hear from tomorrow. The, the commander, Golan Vach, who became a very close friend, who's an extraordinary person, you'll hear his account from his perspective. But just to tell you the details, the technical details, we're far away from the Hasidic response to this matter, but just to understand what do we have to respond to. The physical details are that it was extremely politically, diplomatically hard effort to bring the Israeli IDF team. And the reason being, because they said you can bring Hatzalah, you can bring Zaka, which are volunteer organizations that deal with religious matters. But the IDF team, you're bringing a military presence from a different country to America to help them out. America military doesn't need anybody's help. It's a sense of you know, self-pride. We don't need anybody. It's an army. You know, which country lets another army come onto their soil? Especially America. And so Almighty God in his extraordinary kindness already set, us in, set many things in motion that we saw. But uh, Senator Scott, who's one of our senators, an extraordinary guy, extraordinary person. He was so personally involved. He personally called the State Department. He started to go on the phone, made sure that they would get permission. We got in touch with the Prime Minister's office in Israel and talked through that process. And they said, you know, we'll be happy to come, but we have to be invited. We have to be, you let, let them come in. And this was just at the beginning or towards in the COVID period, if you remember. So people were still concerned about that, especially from other countries. In any case, permission was granted. They got on their flight and they came to America. And to that, that presence, their presence had an incredible positive impact, both technically, in their technology, in their search methods, in the time that they used and how they trained the Americans and in the emotional support that they gave. To give you an example of these Jewish men who came from Israel, and a woman as well, by the way, when they came off the plane, they arranged that they didn't have to go through customs. They went straight from the plane, they put them on the buses, and they brought them to the site. And at the site, they were already working on the site. The American teams were already working on the site. And as they came onto the site, and as you can imagine, the wonderful American, kind, philanthropic, warm-hearted Jews who love Israeli soldiers, they arranged for nice hotels for them, you know, so they could have a place to sleep at night, and they were going to have nice meals for them. They can go out, you know, to have dinner. They come onto the location, and they line up, and of course, I don't mean this in a negative way because Israel does not have a good PR system. But they do not take an opportunity not to get a good picture. So they had their photographers there seeing these men come off. And I remember standing right there and I heard the commander Golan say to the guys as they lined up, already dressed in their fatigues, dressed in their work clothes. He said in Hebrew, he says, no smiles. This is serious. You know, they wanted to give a smile. No, this is not a smiling. And as soon as the picture was taken, he says to the guys, let's go, we're going, onto the, we're going onto the hill, onto the mound, like they called it. They worked no less than 18-hour days. Friday night, we would have dinner together with these men. And halfway through the dinner, they were just serving the main course. They didn't even finish dinner, did some singing and so forth. 
And the commander would get up. He says, let's go, guys, on the, uh, on the mound. Was back to, the, to work 100%. So that was very, very incredible. And all of these factors were important strategic aspects that needed to happen simply from taking care of this kind of an environment. There were literally more volunteers than we could ask for. We had to turn away volunteers, literally thousands of people came to volunteer. We had a massive room, I'd say it was the size of this room, same height also, and this entire room was filled with everything that you could imagine from laptops to diapers to toothbrushes to shoes, to pants, to dresses, anything that anybody needed or even asked for was there right away. There was no questions asked. And the food, food, the same thing, also logistics of the food. We made sure, and this was more expensive, but nonetheless, just to create an environment of not one group better or special than another, you know, the glot kosher food that we had for the people in the military from the IDF group, and also a lot of families who had members in the building who were kosher. So we had a kosher, kosher section. And all the other people, they were getting the, these, uh, you know, McDonald's food, basically, and as well as the search and rescue team, which is about 350 people, the entire search and rescue team. And I walked there one day, and I see this beautiful table of the kosher food, and it's got all the nicest food on it, and it's got their own pizza little machine that's making pizza. And there are the guys who've got these little packaged foods you know, like everybody going around, and I figure there's got to be some not such positive feelings. So I go back to the guy, to the cooks, and we had literally the best chefs in Miami, the one that worked for the most expensive restaurants. After work, they would take off their time, and they would come there to cook. I watched these guys cook. I said, you guys are just volunteers? He says, no, we're cook at La Cruda, whatever the name was. You know, we're the chef over there. So people really, there was an outpouring of, of tremendous kindness. And they told us we could do, I said, I want everybody to go out kosher. It's gonna cost us an extra X amount of thousands of dollars. I said, it's worth it. So there was no non-kosher or kosher. Everybody had steaks. Everybody had whatever there was on the kosher menu. That's what everybody had. So I say, technically, the process was tedious. Also working with the medical examiner. In this instance, you know, I don't like to be so graphic, but there's no other way to address this, but you find body parts. How do you identify them? What do you do with a body part? So the medical examiners who are not used to this kind of meticulousness that when there's a body part that's smashed by a stone, you have to take the, clean off the stone as well, not just take the body part. So it like was a very unusual kind of request. And generally, they don't like people to interfere. But here in this case, they just opened their office, whatever you wanted to do. So that was the physical, practical process of what was taking place, which was a 24-7 operation. Everybody went into stop mode, you know, our shul, our office was just emergency stuff that was going on. All the staff members, all the shluchim, they were full on to this process with the people day and night. The key was the dealing with people. That was the real issue. Because when you're dealing with the people, it's different and unusual than any other circumstance that you ever want to deal with. Because in many cases, when a person loses somebody, there's a period of consolation. 
This is an official period of consolation. You go to the house of the Shiva, the person has towards his clothes. There's an expression of mourning by the lamenter, and there's an expression of consolation by the people who visit. It's a very clear distinction of what's going on. In other cases, when a person, unfortunately, is going through a serious illness, there's a sense of hope. At that moment, you don't deal with consolation. You deal with hope. Don't worry, it's going to be good. The doctor's going to be successful. The surgery is going to be successful. So there's a sense of hope. So those are the two general feelings that you get when you're in these kind of situations. Here, we were literally in a twilight zone. Because you couldn't console them, because they don't want to hear consolation. And if you were on the pile, and not many family members went, sometimes as few of them went, they couldn't deal with it. But when you were on the pile or next to the pile, like I was often, you knew that there was extremely little hope. It was beyond any conceptualization that anything could come out of there especially if you knew the details of what was going on there, which was not always shared for good reasons. Why, not, why bring extra pain to people? But those circumstances were completely there at all, at all times. You walked into the room where the people were, and there was, you know, you walk into a room, the room has energy. Like here, for example, there's people that came to listen to a lecture of a topic. In most places, a wedding, you go into a wedding, a constellation. Here, you can enter a room, and there was this one feeling. The only term I can use to describe it, because the Torah says it's one of the worst feelings a person can have, and that's doubt. There was this emptiness of doubt. People just look at staringly. And they would ask the same questions over and over and over again. And we had presentations by officials from the fire department, the police department, the mayor's department on an extremely regular basis. And there was never, never anything new. And they just would sit there to hear, maybe I would get something. And I remember this one particular attorney from South America who lost an entire family. And he would always get up there and talk to him about how he would do the search differently and so forth and talk about it. And he and I would always interact. At these occasions, I would have the opportunity and was asked to sometimes address the people as the police department addressed them or the fire department addressed them or the mayor addressed them. They wanted me to address them from a rabbi's point of view that perspective. And in the same way as I had to address the teams of the search and rescue that would gather from time to time and they would want somebody to give them some words of inspiration or something. What do you say to these people? And what do you say? Do you say, don't worry about anything? So the fact of the matter is that you do not in any way say anything that's not true. 
don't ever say anything that's not true. And also, you must admit up front, clearly, unequivocally, that you have no answers. You have no answers to this kind of an unfathomable act. This is an act of God that's outside of the bandwidth of our limited three-dimensional brains. We do not have the capacity to comprehend anything of that nature. Number three, you have no questions because a question demands an answer and there are no answers. So the only thing that we can do is to live with two things. A is the knowledge that your loved one added an incredible, undeniable, irreplaceable aspect to your life and to acknowledge it and to know it and if you feel bad or worse by thinking it, that's healthy. It's not unhealthy. Because feeling painful and bad is not an unhealthy feeling. It's feeling doubtful and filled with anxiety and without faith and helpless. That's unhealthy. But feeling deeply hurt and bad for something like this is the most healthy thing you can do. Not to feel bad would, not to feel bad would be unhealthy. And to tell you some of the basic kind of responses that people had because we they came to a decision. There was one thing that we have to do. How do you respond to this kind of thing? What is the Jewish Hasidic response? What is it? How do you deal with it? And we made one honest decision that, as I mentioned earlier, there's no theological response. There's no philosophical response. No rational response. The only response is to bring more goodness and kindness around you. So we saturated the space with an unbelievable amount of overwhelming kindness. And the kindness was of such a nature that it touched the core of the people to such a degree that it reversed natural negative thoughts, for example. This kind of a situation that you see here should, in most circumstances, create denial of God, question of God's existence, where is God, why did God? That's what the obvious questions would be. They are questions that people ask who did not, did not even experience it. Like, people that read stories of the Holocaust, they say, oh, I can't believe in God because where was God, etc. 
That's people who didn't even experience it. Here, you mentioned someone who experiences right in front of their face. They had a they had a personal Holocaust. They lost their whole family, uh, nephew and niece, and two little children, or lost a father and a mother, or lost a father and an uncle, or lost a son and a daughter. Right in front of them. And so the obvious response under those circumstances would be, from a rational point of view, don't tell me about God. God doesn't exist. Not happening. Here, just the opposite takes place. Literally, the opposite reality takes place. People who had no connection with any kind of observant Jewish life, nothing, zero. They became so enchanted by the Jewish way of life. He came into my office, he and his father, who lost a daughter and a sister and their boyfriend, her fiance, in this incredible tragedy. They put on the film for the first time in their life and started to attend synagogue wherever they were. And the young man now is going to Israel to study his Jewishness now. He just lost his sister. He had no connection to God. What are you coming back here on this level? Another non-Jewish woman, she said to me, she was uh, from a diplomatic family. She lost members of her family. She walked around with pictures in her hand all the time. And we befriended her in this open, very open, accepting, kind way. And she said to me one day, she says, Rabbi, could you please do me a favor? I said, what can I do for you? Sure. She says, I want to be Jewish. She says, I grew up in a South American country. I never grew up among Jews. I heard about them, but I never grew up among them. And now, when I've been here now in this period of time, and I see how Jewish people are, I want to be Jewish. Obviously, it didn't happen, but that's the extent. A firefighter who is a six foot four, former Marine SEAL. I mean, these are guys that are very physical and so forth. So in the middle of my talk one day, when I told them how important their work was in retrieving the eternity of a human being, because we believe that until the person is, the person is alive, your body is your responsibility. When a person passes away, that body belongs to God. And the way you treat it is treating God's possessions. And I explained to them how they, in their extraordinary work, were treating God's possessions. And therefore, they had holy, I called it your, your work that you're doing is not only technically extraordinary and selfless and community-orientated, but it's holy work. As you're working on your holy pile, that's what you do. It's a very holy special place and this man comes up to me later on and he's got tears in his eyes I said what's going on he says you know Rabbi I just got to tell you something when I was a kid I grew up uh, a certain Christian religion uh, Methodist whatever he said it didn't work for me I got a little older it became a Mormon it didn't work for me it became something else he says finally I just threw it all out it doesn't make any sense to me he says today I got it back 
That's what he said. I got it back. Several other instances of similar power. One of the higher officers of the fire department, who was a Spanish man, been in the department for many years, he gets up there and he's in tears. And he says, I've never shared this with anybody, but I want you to know, and I'm proud of it now, that my wife is Jewish. And all of a sudden I see this guy, and all of a sudden his kids are Jewish. This is a whole new area that we need to now develop. But that's what happened under those circumstances. When the governor would come to see us, when the senators would come to see us, when the president came to see us, when all of these people were senators, all kind of people came to see us, they were all positively impacted. And you think to yourself, what was that positive impact? And that's why I say the Hasidic response. The Hasidic response is that everything, everything comes from Hashem. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, whether you can handle it or not, that's the fact. That's the reality. You can't lie with reality. You can't fool reality. You can fool yourself of not accepting reality, yes. There are fools like that around the world. But you cannot fool the reality of, of, of being. That is critical. God does every single thing. Together with that, the origin of God's presence and of God's influence is kindness. According to all kinds of sources, very much emphasized by Hasidism, Teva Hatov Lehetiv. It's the nature of the one who is good to do good, and God is the one who is good. So he does kindness. And he created Almighty God, creator of the universe, who constantly reverberates with energy within each and us, every one of us, and pulsates us with our life force that makes us who we are every single second. And if he would cease for a second, it's not that we would be gasping for air. We just wouldn't be. We are created ex nihilo, which is a different conversation. But together with that, this extraordinary God that is beyond the heaven and earth, that is beyond the multi-sphere that is now existent, beyond the milky, beyond anything that we can imagine, he created you and me. Each individual, unique, like there is nobody else like you and me, and nobody else will ever be like you and me. The simple proof of that, without getting into philosophy, is your fingerprint. You ask anybody, any artist, any computer specialist, any designer, how many straight lines can they make, not with infrared, not with x-ray vision, how many lines can you make in a half, in a half square inch that are different? If he tells you a million, he's way over-exaggerating. Yet God made billions of little lines right in this half inch that is different. That in itself is a pretty unique accomplishment that's outside of the realm of understanding. Each of us is unique. And when he created us, he knows what he's doing, right? I mean, obviously, he knows what he's doing. So if he knows what he's doing, why did he create you and me? Why? Because each of us is important. Each of us is critical to the creation. Each of us fulfills his mission, his world. He needs you and me to fulfill his world. 
It's not like uh, it's not, I'm not doing it, having an ego trip here. That's the fact. You made me. I didn't make myself. And the reason you made me is because you need me. Because if you didn't need me, you wouldn't make me. Or more than need me, which is more powerful, I'm sorry. I shouldn't use the word need. You want me. You have a desire for me. Boy, that's pretty heavy duty. And we, Hasidus, looks at every single human being in that way. That's why before we connect to God, before there are prayers where we connect to God, before we do any supplication, we say, I hereby accept to fulfill the mitzvah, to love my fellow man like myself. On that level, that expression in its manifested state, when you have a chance to put it into practice, like in this case, we were able to take this concept and practicalize it with people. They felt it. They knew it. They knew that they were important. They knew that there was no uh, ulterior motive for this process, except you're my brother and I'm going to take whatever, whatever I can do. And believe me, there were some tough times. I don't ever think. The only, the only time I ever saw this was in a picture of the Holocaust. But then, a year ago, in our cemetery, I participated in a funeral with four people being buried at the same time. Four people under the age of 30. And instead of doing four separate graves, they opened up one giant grave. And I've never seen that before. Like it's like a pit. And these and the families are standing there and watching this whole process. And the only thing that gives them a moment, not of happiness, that is out of the question at that time. That's why you mourn. But gives them a moment of solace. Solace is the fact that they really believe based on how this whole thing was treated, that these souls that are being buried now are continuing to live. And for them to live, that was to give them the solace that they have. And I believe that that faith, that commitment that we expressed in a reality of life is what really was the resonating power that had this extraordinary response that transformed the community in an extraordinary way. Thank you very much. If anybody has any questions, you know. Yes. Yeah. 
how many diabetes you have shows, everybody was dedicating Sefer Torahs and, and, and Philot, you name it. So for that, even though I lost my cousins, I said that moment of united of our Jewish people, like if one soul, like 600 souls, tells me that. There was one gentleman, just to tell you, he came to synagogue that first Saturday. And um, he was there with his family. He lost a grandchild, beautiful man. And he was sitting there, and he was sobbing, brokenhearted. You know, we all were, this was a very difficult time, this first Saturday. I remember all Friday night, I was at the, at the site just to make sure things were going right. It was a crazy time. And this man was sitting in the synagogue, and I decided, I decided to go up to him and to, to see if I can help him. And I walked up to him, and he started to scream. He says, in Yiddish, he says, God, yechtavted, God, vubistu. He says, God, I need you. God, where are you? God, where are you? He didn't say, God, I don't believe in you. He says, God, I need you. God, where are you? And I think that feeling of continuous interaction and presence with God in this process was a very powerful force, and it, it permeated everything. To tell you another little incident that I recall, it was very, a painful and very emotional moment. All of the workers on the site, whenever they found anybody or body, and the Israelis were very technically equipped to do that. You'll hear that tomorrow from the commander. He'll give you the, a breakdown of how they did it. But every time they found any part of the body, the entire team, everybody on the, on the mound, and there were like maybe hundreds of people on the mound because everything was done by hand, but yet they had this heavy equipment, that these trailers, caterpillar, uh, big uh, earth movers, and they were all over the place. Every time they found somebody, there would be like an announcement, and the entire place stopped, completely stopped. Everybody stopped working. They stood at attention. All the machines got turned off from this massive sound that permeated the air. Suddenly, all you heard were the air, were the waves coming onto the, onto the beach. You could hear nothing else. And everybody stood at attention as they carried that whatever remains were down the pile to the medical examiner. And then every time they put it in a truck, one medical examiner to leave, there was like an honor guard along the entire beach as the truck pulled away. I remember one time that one of the firefighters, it was a very sad moment, one of the firefighters, he found his little child and he picked her up out of the debris wasn't alive anymore. So you can imagine the entire environment there. There probably were as many tears as there were waves that happened at that moment when that extraordinary feeling was across. But what happened was that during that period of time, it was very, very clear that people were connected. There was no disconnect. There was no anger. It was all integrated, connected. And all of that was because Hashem was at the center of this process. Thank you. Anyone else have any comments, questions? Go ahead. But 
from history we know people after Holocaust, many of them left Judaism because anger of God. Why here was different? A very, a very good question, and I'll answer that for you. One of the consequences of dealing with such a tragedy like a Holocaust, in order to be able to live through it, when you see with your own eyes the murder of your parents, brothers, sisters, or other ways, you see the torture, the inhuman elements that take place. I had a gentleman in our community. He was a little boy, he was with his mother in one of the concentration camps, standing on the food line. His little boy, his father was in another camp. They had already, his father was murdered. His mother was with him. And he said his mother was, you know, an attractive lady. And so one of the SS officers approached her and started to be assaulted, assaulting her. And he grabbed a hold of her clothing to kind of uh, take control, and she slapped him. And this man said that this SS officer took out his, his pistol and killed her right there in front of him. And not only killed him, but he directed the people to bury her right here. So every day when they walk by to get their food, they'll walk on her, on her grave and see what a person gets if they don't listen. So in order to be able to live with that kind of effect, I'm not talking about that particular person, but just give me examples. You hear many stories. You had to either, you got broken, or you desensitize. You had to stop feeling. That's why, unfortunately, many Holocaust survivors have issues, third generation Holocaust survivors, because they had to desensitize. And when you desensitize, you don't know how far you desensitize. You stop feeling. Stopping to feel is sometimes worse than feeling. Worse than feeling bad. Because I know in, in, in the criminal justice system, when dealing with criminals, the one person that's the most difficult to deal with is a person that doesn't care do me, hit me, I don't care. I don't feel it anymore. They were so abused during their life, during their early life, that they adjusted to pain, and pain does not hurt them anymore. So they had to desensitize. When you desensitize, you cannot have God in your life. It's very impossible, because God demands consciousness and sensitivity and accountability, etc. So that's what happened under those circumstances. Number one. Number two, they, they, this was a test that affected their behavior. I had a very good friend of mine, dear friend of mine, who was a brilliant, brilliant man. He became extremely successful, highly successful. He was in Auschwitz, if some of you have read uh, the book of the, uh, where God was taken to court for guilty of murder and the interchange between the prosecutors and the defenders. So he was one of these guys. He was on the judges. And he was telling us, this, this, that's the kind of guy he was. And we would meet on a weekly basis with a whole group 
of Holocaust survivors. And we talk, and he was a guy who said, mm-hmm. don't tell me, I don't believe, I don't believe in this, and I don't believe in that, and so forth. And uh, he was extremely brilliant, so he, he reads, he read a lot, and so forth. So one day, I said, I'm going to play devil's advocate. So I come into the meeting, and I said, you know something, I admire, you're brilliant, I like you. I think your ideas are great. You say there's no thing as God, you don't have to put on the filling, you don't have to keep kosher, you don't have to keep anything. I'm joining you. I like what you said. I'm doing it. The guy said, no, you're not. I said, why not? If it's good for you, why not? Good for me. He said, no, I, I don't want you to do it. There's no way you're not going to do it. So this, this gentleman, just to give you a perspective, yes, good question. How do they turn away from Hashem? So we have a Shabbos around the table. We have a lot of people that come around the table. Shabbos, and we, each one takes on a mitzvah, says a word of Torah. So one day we had this group, interesting people, and he, this guy, Meyer Goldstein was one of them, and he actually didn't want to come to synagogue anywhere, so his friend says, come on to the rabbi, you have some good chont. Anyways, he came to shul begrudgingly. He brought him to shul this Saturday, came to our house, he was sitting at the table, and I go around the table, and uh, everybody goes around the table, takes a mitzvah, says a word of Torah, this guy takes on a mitzvah, he's going to pray every day, another guy's going to put on tefillin, another guy says he's going to keep Shabbos, whatever. We come to, come to him, and he's looking at me. He says, what do you want me to do? I says, how about taking on a mitzvah? He says, which mitzvah do you want me to take on? So I think I had said a little chayim that day, and we were like in a very boisterous mood. I said, really? I think you should start putting on tefillin. That opened a, a dam of emotion. He says, tell me, I'm going to tell you about my tefillin. He says, I don't put on not tefillin because I don't put on tefillin. I don't put on tefillin because I don't put on tefillin. He says, when I was a kid, I was a boy. I was 12 and a half years old. He said, the Nazis was coming into town. I, had, I used to ride my bike from place to place. And I told my father, let's get out of here. The Nazis are coming. He didn't go. The Nazis were going to come into town. So one day, just before the Nazis came in, he says, my father calls me over with my uncle. And he was the very high-level, brilliant scribes. He was a scribe of one of the greatest scholars of that period. He calls me over and he says, Meidel. That's what he called me, like a beloved mayor. Meidel, I want you to give me a promise. Kiaskaf. And he puts out his hand, and he said, I want you to promise me that you're going to put on tefillin when you're by mitzvah, and he'll always put on tefillin. He says, I'm lifting up my hand to grab my father's hand and to finish the handshake, and my uncle grabs my hand, and he says to my father, why are you making a promise something that he may not be able to keep? Don't make him promise something he may not be able to keep. And I remember my father's hand is stretched out. My hand is halfway up with my uncle's hand on top of it. And we never finished the handshake. So I don't know what got into me, but something must have gotten into me. So I said to the man, I know my wife is sitting here. She was there at the table. And I said to him, I just stuck my hand out. I said, let's finish the handshake now. He says, finish the handshake, can't. I said, no, no, let's finish the handshake. I was like, I was pushing him. 
I probably would not have done it if I would be more thoughtful, you know, don't push the guy. It's emotional, it's an experience. I was just there. I said, come on, let's finish it. And this guy, he picks up his hand and he grabs my hand and I feel like an electric shock going through my hand. And everybody around the table is crying. You know, we, we just finished a 40-year-old handshake. Started 40 years ago. And we just finished it now. To tell you that the guy used to, came in the next morning and started putting on the film. And he continued to do so until the last day of his life. He was a healthy, perfectly healthy man, this guy. I tell you, he must have been a special soul. He was a very healthy man. One day he comes to the class. He says, guys, I'm going to Israel. The guy said, what are you going to Israel for? You got this beautiful home. You got everything going on here. You got, what are you going to Israel? He says, I'm going to die. Come on, Meyer, you're going to die. Live another 50 years. He went to Israel a week later, he passed away. But that's what happens under those circumstances. So you can adjust your brain to feel or not to feel pain. And when you adjust your brain to feel not to feel pain, you also turn off to the neurotransmitters that carry faith. Have a good day, everybody. A good evening. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.